Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Aaron M. Evans. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Katie Brisky. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a fabulous opportunity to really dig deep into the heart of some literary gold. It is an <laughs> opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and I. I know it sounds grand and glorious. It does, because it is grand and glorious. <laughs> it is a quest, a never-ending An epic, a never, exactly, exactly, an ongoing branch. Katie Brisky, a, a veteran co-host of The Round Table, who has, dear friends, risked life and limb to stride boldly into the virtual studios of The Round Table. Ma'am, it's always a delight to co-host with you, and Thank you so very much for, for braving the wintry wilds uh, I, to make I this happen. I went to a different country for you, Dave. I know. And you you risked border patrols and so on. I'm grateful. Oh, and U.S. border patrol is really scary. <laughs> also, be. if you call them border patrol, they don't like it. They're what? U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Oh, okay. And they will thank you to remember that fact. I Im- learned that the hard way. Important safety tip, dear friends. Jot that one down. <laughs> <laughs> Again, well, as Canadians, we're very threatening. <laughs> Katie, I can only imagine. I'm, I'm sure you have like a libation at your side, and your coffee. Coffee is good. Just sit coffee. back, relax. Let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of Twenty Minutes with. May I? Yes, please do. Oh, good, excellent. Well, here's the deal. Our guest host was raised in an environment that pretty much guaranteed she'd grow up geek. (laughs) Her parents watched Doctor Who and Star Trek, and they ensured that their children had magic in their lives. Now, as a child, she suffered from a pretty serious bout of insomnia, and she shared a room with her sister, who had no trouble at all sleeping, so she couldn't really indulge in late-night reading. So, she'd lie awake in the dark and tell herself elaborate stories to get herself through the night. Now, with that kind of exercise informing her younger years, it should come as no surprise that she grew up to be an eager reader who loved telling stories and even went so far as to carry around sketchbooks to draw out the story she came up with. Now, her mother was convinced that she would grow up to be a writer, But at the time, our guest host wasn't all that sure. Uh, She wasn't a gamer. In fact, she wouldn't start rolling D20s until she was 24 years old. Her first exposure to D&D was the cartoon that aired in the 80s. And rumor has it that she really wanted to be uni from that cartoon. Uh, She did play with My Little Ponies with her sister. And apparently the ponies spent a lot of time fighting monsters and holding elections in their branch of the MLP narrative. So she didn't really start writing until she was 15. And even then, it wasn't exactly a desire to tell stories that drove her to take up the pen. Now, she was in high school and reading a historical fantasy novel that shall remain nameless. 
Uh, it had a very cool premise, but the author's choices drove our guest host absolutely insane. And in a fit of literary madness, she rage quit the book and set out to write a better one. And she did rewrite it. But come on, she was 15 years old. It was an abomination. <laughs> but that didn't stop her from trying again and again, at which point she discovered she kind of liked it. Now, in 1999, she started attending Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. And while she was majoring in anthropology, which, by the way, may be the perfect major for a fantasy author, she took enough writing classes to earn a minor in the writerly arts when she graduated in 2003. She learned a lot about character arcs and plot structure in those classes, all the things that she had internalized from the reading she had done up to that point. But one of the most valuable experiences she acquired was the ability to have her work read and critiqued by others. Now, she celebrated graduation by tooling around the country in a Winnebago for nine months with Kevin, her soon-to-be husband, eventually coming in for a landing around Seattle, Washington. She did some work as a content editor and presenter with Mad Science of King County, a company that creates hands-on science events and classes for kids. And from there, she moved on to Peraspera Press, a fantasy and science fiction imprint where she worked as an editorial assistant and publishing intern, reading from the slush piles and getting a crash course in what worked and what didn't in terms of storytelling. Now, at this point, a mutual friend of her and her husband's was trying to get a D&D game going for people who had never played before, and she and her husband joined in. Her first character? A neutral evil sorcerer with a freakishly high charisma, a trait she exploited to its fullest extent. And really, when you've got like a 20 charisma, who doesn't just work that for all it's worth? Uh, she delighted in cobbling together spells in ways that no mortal should ever contemplate, causing mayhem for lizard men and her DM alike. Now, doubtless, it was a combination of her experience with Peraspera and around the gaming table that in 2006 led her to answer an ad from Wizards of the Coast for an editorial assistant. Now, she secured that position based on her skills, experience, and sheer exuberant enthusiasm. She had a story titled The Resurrection Agent appear in the Realms of the Dead Forgotten Realms anthology alongside some of the heaviest hitters in the Forgotten Realms writer's stable, including Ed Greenwood, R.A. Salvatore, and Bruce Cordell. Then, in 2009, Susan Morris, who had edited Realms of the Dead, had some people drop out of a project, a series of stories in the Ed Greenwood Presents Waterdeep series, and reached out and invited our guest host to make a pitch. She did, it was accepted, and thus her first novel, The God Catcher, was introduced into the world. And from there, she went on to write the much-praised Brimstone Angels novel, featuring the tiefling sorcerer Farida. Now, that novel won the 2012 Scribe Award for Best Original Speculative Fiction Novel and solidified her seat at the storyteller's table in the Forgotten Realms. She followed it up with Lesser Evils that continued Farida's saga. 
Now, next, she contributed to the Sundering series with her novel, The Adversary, as the third in the series, continuing the narrative laid down by Ed Greenwood, R.A. Salvatore, Troy Denning, Paul Kemp, and Richard Lee Byers. She lobbied heavily to allow Farida to be the vehicle for that story, and by God, she won. Last October, Fire in the Blood hit the stands, continuing Farida's adventures in the aftermath of her role in The Sundering. And just last week, dear friends, book five of the Brimstone Angels series, Ashes of the Tyrant, detonated on bookshelves everywhere to the delight of fans of our guest host's work and the ongoing Farida saga. Now, from editor to gamer to storyteller, there can be no doubt our guest host has a passion for telling fantastical tales rooted deeply in the hearts of the characters that drive them. She loves reading Connie Willis, N.K. Jemison, and old Sumerian epics. She makes up words like Schadenfreudentastically, which pretty much endears her forever (laughs) in the hearts of this podcast. She uses write or die in kamikaze mode, which deletes the words you wrote if you start slacking. She uses Dungeons and Dragons as a behavior modification tool for her children. And friends, practically like five minutes ago, she just had a baby. A a handsome young gent going by the name of Itzy Mr. E. So, holy crap, dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Aaron M. Evans. Aaron, my mind boggles at at the, first of all, at your achievements uh, in the past, and also the fact that you just had a child. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for making the time in the context of all of this to share some of your thoughts with us, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, look, before we dive into this, I've, I've got a question. It's a question you've answered before, but I love your answer. Your your website, where your blog, where you, you recount your events in the world, is called <laughs> slushslush.com. Uh, which, you know, of course is going to make somebody go, say what? Uh, but there's an actual story behind why you call it that. And would you, would you share that with our listeners real quick? Yeah. Um, when I first moved to Seattle, I like you, I think you mentioned, I worked for a small press called Paraspora. And one of my, one of my jobs, one of my main jobs was to go through the slush pile, which is all the unsolicited manuscripts that get sent in. And it was wonderful. It's my favorite. I love reading slush. But at the same time, they had thought the thought that they would do kind of a blog that had me and then the other intern kind of talking about what we saw and what we liked and what kind of the, the big mistakes you saw coming through were. Interesting. Uh, and, and to give us kind of both nicknames for that instead of our real names. So that was mine was Slush Lush. <laughs> slush. <laughs> slush Lush. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. What do you love so much about reading Slush? You know, it's... The thing that that I love about it, and this is going to sound so hokey, but it's so hopeful and and enthusiastic. When you get to the (laughs) point that you've finished something and you're like, I'm going to send this out into the world, that's really brave. And you can see it come through. And, you know, sometimes it comes through with, like, just tons and tons of ego. You get the letters where people were like, I am ready to be on Oprah. And you're like, oh, honey. Oh. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah, not so much. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, if you you think about it, I think it's easy to read that kind of stuff and, and to read 
this flesh that's really not ready and and be irritated. I think some people find it really irritating because you read a lot of bad fiction and it gets frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, that at the same time you kind of put yourself, you know, imagine being in that in that position and, and what it, it feels like to, you know, to have something done that's exciting and to feel like you can put it out into the world. And I don't know, it, always, it, it just always feels good. And then it, there is something really nice about you reading things that, you know, are are sort of finished but not finished they're still in need of, of a polish they're in need of a second set of eyes a lot of the time but you can see and, the glimmer of gold yeah. in there somewhere and and being able to look at things in that stage of progress you can kind of say hey if you just took this piece and yanked it out and and tied this part over here and um <laughs> you can kind of, kind of like get an eye for how this could be revised into something really special and and i think it's if you can get it, you know, get that opportunity. It's great for developing your writing skills. You pretty much summarized the whole premise of the Roundtable podcast right there, oh, Aaron. Good. So that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you for that. I, 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 Slushslush.com, dear friends, make that scene. There's there's good stuff to be found up there. Let's let's not bandy words or banter any further. I'm, I'm keen to get down to our 20 minutes with Aaron M. Evans. I'm just going to set the clock here. And we will ignore it because that's what we do here at the roundtable. We need a little asterisk after 20 minutes. Twi- yes, really 20 esque. Eh. Ish. Eh. A little asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Maybe. Kind of. Sort of. Exactly. Well, Aaron, let me ask you. Um, obviously, I, I, I've done some significant stalking uh, research uh, about you in, in preparation for this. And I came across your, your Ask Me Anything on Reddit. Which was fascinating, and you—you you had mentioned something. Uh, you, you'd said that uh, you draw a surprising amount of inspiration from TV shows, and that there's a there's a flow to episodic drama that matches up with serialized fiction, and and that really caught my eye. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to to wax rhapsodic on that just for a little <laughs> bit. Uh, what sure. what are those qualities of episodic television that you see translating into serialized fiction, and how do you think could our listeners as writers utilize that to enhance their own fiction? I think the big thing is, so I'm talking about particularly the, the kind of fiction that I write. The Brimstone Angels saga is... You know, from the start, was meant to go on as long as as long as Wizards wants to publish it. Um, or if you look at something like Legend of Dritz, is sort of the classic example. There's right. twenty something books in it. Right, um, exactly. And people still love it. So the thing with that is, you know, when you have uh, something like a trilogy. There's a there's a structure, right? There's a sense of like the arcs that that travel through all three books or through you know each individual book. And there's a lot of examples of that that you can kind of look at and say okay, here's, here's where my major plot points go, here's how I tie this book to this book, and, and you know, avoid the dreaded middle book, you know, slump. Um, right. The thing that, that matches up with watching, you know, with looking at, like, an episodic drama, or the USA Network does those sort of character, or I don't know if they still do, I haven't, <laughs> I have two small children, I hardly get to watch TV. <laughs> and, and you're writing books <laughs> left and I, right, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's Netflix, so I don't have to deal with the commercials. Uh, they do those sort of uh, character-based sort of drama comedies um, right. and I think it's a kind of a good example for that so you have if you think about each book being like an episode that there's something that pulls the characters through that particular book but doesn't necessarily tie up all of the elements of their sort of internal arc their their 
this, this things that are set up with conflicts with the characters and think of that more as like your season arc, right? That's going to co carry through these three books or something. Okay. Um, and then keeping an eye out for what's sort of your series arc. What is this stuff that's going to push you through the whole series, which of course I can't think of a single TV <laughs> show as an example. Well, you look, you, um, you can recognize like in NCIS oh. or in, uh, in suits, you, you can see in that first episode, they're, they're planting the seed for the finale and it's just going to take us, you know, 10, 20 episodes to actually get to that final culmination. Right. And I think, too, you know, the, with an open ended series, knowing how to make that transition from being sort of the series arc to being sort of a season arc or a multi season arc, you know, once you find out, you know, like Burn Notice, for example, yes. which I, mm. I, I haven't watched all of it, but I have watched enough to know <laughs> that you find out who burned him. Right. But then yes. that sort of uncovers a bigger mystery. And then the whole of it is sort of this arc of him dealing with his sort of his past and his present and his future, right? And and to have him kind of reconcile all of that um, in the fourth episode, it would just destroy the show. It would be completely uninteresting after that. So I think that the key with doing um, series fiction that, that isn't, you know, a, well, even if it is, you know, a hard structure to kind of have a sense of what each book's arc is, what's the story you're telling, what's the conflict you're resolving, and which conflicts do you want to push out for longer and how long can they really go? Cause, cause some of those things you can't, you can't make it last forever. You end up with this sort of, um, <laughs> the, the, the problem of, of the, the romance, the, the Ross and Rachel problem kind of thing, right? Where you, sure. you pull people through because they want to know what happens here, but you don't really have anything to catch you once that's resolved. Yeah, so so back, if you want to keep going past that, you need something else. You need something more interesting. <laughs> back in my day, it was moonlighting with Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard and that <laughs> romantic tension. Yes, back in the day. Uh, so now, Katie, let me let me ask you real quick, and I'm I'm not accustomed to to shifting questions around, but you've written a lot of fiction, and I know that you've had that seed of serialization in your works. Have you cultivated what Aaron's talking about in terms of creating that overarching arc that will sustain through multiple stories? Kind of, but not not as eloquently or as thoroughly as it sounds like Aaron's done. <laughs> Um, I wanted to get in questions about more like story architecture, but just to, to do, um, answer yours very quickly, uh, I think the most serialized thing I did was my audio drama, uh, Coxwood History Fun Park. Right. Which right. I pants that. <laughs> Total pantsage. Total pantsage of just throwing <laughs> things in and then only at the very end saying, okay, so all of those things I thought were funny now need to coalesce into some kind of coherent ending. I love and I that. <laughs> I totally yeah. do that too. Yeah, because I was gonna say, because a lot of the like TV shows, especially, they're, they're really heavy on the story architecture. Like yeah. when you start looking at things like beat sheets, and when you start actually picking apart the script, like every note that they're hitting is really, really well timed. And I was wondering how much that played, but it sounds like you're a pantser, pantser as I, well. Well, I think yeah, I think like that. That's sort of the. The hope and the goal, right? That every That's scene cool. has beat, yeah. <laughs> and that. The, but I think it also comes together with sort of what you're saying, where where sometimes you just have a detail that's cool, and and you know in the back of your head, like this is going to have to matter later. Yeah. You have to make this matter. Or um, so I've had a couple of times where the and unfortunately the only one I can think of is one that that doesn't get revealed until <laughs> until the, the book I'm working on now. No so spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> but um in um in Lesser Evils I added in 
a moment where Farida is kind of possessed by a ghost. And while she is, she talks, but she talks in a different voice. And I added that in because I realized when I was working on, I actually went back and added it because when I was working on the adversary, I realized it would be really cool for the ghost of her kind of ancestor to appear. And that's something that when you look at it, it looks like I, I started seeding that in the first book that this character, this ghost is going to come out and be this major, major villain. Um, but I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but in point like, of fact, I, it was like, oh, that's there. I'll just use that. <laughs> the, the, the really funny thing, I think it's funny anyway, was that um, the series title is Brimstone Angels. And it's the first book. And that was that was just two kind of cool words together because if I didn't think of a title fast, the managing editor was going to call it Hellfire Twins, which I thought sounded like a softcore porno. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Like, oh, no. I want that. So I decided it was just jamming words together. And uh, and in the middle of writing it, I, I kind of thought, well, there's this notion that there are these warlocks that descend from this original coven of warlocks that made this deal with the King of the Hells. And um, I was like, oh, well, what if what if the one she's descended from is called, they, what if her epithet is the Brimstone Angel, right? So now all the descendants are called Brimstone Angels. Okay, that's cool. That's why it's super cool that. title works. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds, it sounds like the important thing for you is just getting something down yes. and then working with whatever you've got later. Yes, I think that makes a big, that, that works best for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's very exciting. Play as much as you can, but, you know. Don't, and they're just going to go for it. Because <laughs> well, cool stuff comes out of that, right? We'll be back with more of our conversation with Aaron M. Evans after this brief promotional break. The time has come, the villain said, to plot of many things. Of heroes, traps, and ray gun blasts. Of minions and power rings. And why the sidekicks always die and why the supervillains make the best kings. Supervillain Corner returns for its epic third season, premiering October 31st and dropping every following Saturday. Subscribe through iTunes or download the show directly from super-corner.com. That's super-corner.com. We will be back. The villains will be back. We always come back! <laughs> now, let's get back to the conversation with Aaron M. Evans. Well, and, and you had mentioned, Aaron, in your um, in October uh, 2014, uh, talking about Fire in the Blood and weaving multiple POVs together. You had talked about how you tag all the scenes with their viewpoint characters in order to keep track of them and, and make big flow charts with, yeah. with characters' paths and so on. Now, the, the, the OCD in me goes, yes, charts, graphs, <laughs> love it. Uh, but my, my, I guess my question is, was that just to keep track of a linear progression of all of these multiple POV arcs? Or were you trying to align them into some sort of, of, of symphony of beats that would like resonate and, and accentuate off of each other? I think it starts as the first and it kind of flows into the second. Because there's a what I do first is I have a whole bunch of post-it notes and a really big wall in my office. <laughs> and I start at the top of the wall and I, I lay out the scenes and I mark the ones that are sort of critically important you know, here's a peripatea and stuff like that. 
and and then try to like make sure that that major points that that sort of intersect or uh, kind of bounce off each other line up properly. Because if you have a you know if you have a reveal that then um, leads into another reveal and that they they're separated by like three chapters, that's just not going to resonate for the reader as well. Sure. Um, so I do that when I'm outlining to kind of visualize, okay, where is everything falling into place? And then I also started using Scrivener, which does that a little more tidily and doesn't take over the whiteboard in, in a <laughs> shared office. Um, and the other thing I'll do sometimes is, I think as adversary, I had to do this, is I had a character who in the first draft just, he wasn't working, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. So I went through and I made like a choose your own adventure thing. <laughs> and and basically came oh, to cool. all these decision points and said, okay, this happens. He does X, at, or he does Y, or he does Z, and, and doesn't engage with this problem at all. And just basically came down like, okay, here is every possible solution, and then like wrote them up, and then compared them to sort of the other characters' arcs because I I find that a lot of the time without necessarily doing it intentionally, I tend to find character arcs that sort of parallel each other that this sort of aspects of the same issue but they're you know they're dealt with in different ways or they're That's complicated cool. by different factors thanks and and like having that pulled out it's it's a little easier to say oh oh my gosh okay i see now it's it's <laughs> this right you're feeling betrayed and so it's this way um well, is that an accident, do you think, Aaron? I mean, you, you say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm writing these character arcs, and, and hey, you know, these two characters in this same story that I'm working on right now, they seem to actually resonate a little bit. Is, is that just happy accident, or, or is there more going on there? Is there some sort of subconscious, subliminal, uh, uh, writerly craft thing happening? I like to think of it as a subconscious writerly craft, yeah. I, um, <laughs> Rather than pure it's luck. One of those, it's one of those things where it, like, it happens and, you know, you go, how did I miss that? How did I miss this was coming together? In the, my first Brimstone Angels book, uh, Farida's story really strongly parallels the villain, Rohini's. Um, they're both kind of saddled with this identity, you know, other people's version of their identity, I guess, that, that doesn't fit them. Um, Rohini is a succubus, which in D&D have always been demons, but suddenly they've, they've switched sides at that point, and they're, they're on the devil's side, which is much more organized and lawful, but the devils don't really like them. And so she's kind of trying to deal with, am I, you know, which side do I belong to? And they, you know, they both have this a sister that's kind of pulling them in the opposite direction. But where Farida kind of turns to her own moral compass, Rohini just keeps making the wrong choices and falls apart. And none of that was in my outline. Like, none of that was something <laughs> I thought I was writing. And it wasn't until I was most of the way through the first draft, and I was like, this is the same story, but kind of turned sideways. So I think it comes out in a way, like, you, you kind of have that instinct when you're writing, like, oh, this should be, I should pull out this, and I should say this. I've had my editor point out, like, the book I'm working on right now, I, I sent her the first draft, and I was feeling a little bit at sea and going, I don't know if this is working. And she's like, no, this is, this is really, these are really paralleling really well. You just have to like take this scene and pull out the fact that, that, you know, this character's having a a problem with, with this particular aspect, which this stinks because I can't, I really can't say anything about that book. (laughs) You can not spoiling it massively. (laughs) But Aaron, it's cool because you've also been an editor. So uh, when you're looking at someone else's work, do you find the same thing if there's things that they've written that they're not aware of, but having a different perspective? Maybe is it easier to kind of see it right away? Good question. Well, I think so, yeah. Um, you know, it's, and I have to admit, it's been a while since I've 
edited um basically after my son was born my first son was born i was like okay something something has to give right now um so <laughs> i stopped taking editing clients but um but yeah there, there i can think of books where you know you're looking at it and and the the bones are there right like the maybe mm-hmm. the the plot's really strong but the characters just kind of slightly off key um and and kind of taking that other perspective and saying you know this is coming off this way but if you made it about you know this aspect of their of their problem um it would it would all sync up really well i tend to suggest people adding more interpersonal conflict because i think that's always interesting (laughs) absolutely well and it drives it back to the character which is the cornerstone of any story sure well, and, and I'm, I'm, as, as, I, as you describe your, your work setting, Aaron, uh, uh, Katie, I've seen your work setting, and the two, your two work settings sound very similar. Katie, I know you've got like <laughs> five whiteboards that uh, actually become like wallpaper and floor paper for you. So I want to ask a question of both of you, and Aaron, I'll ask it of you first, and then Katie, I'll turn it over to you. Aaron, what's on those note cards? Because I think every writer, you know, who studies the craft has seen those, you know, tabs and tabs and tabs of post-it notes or, or whiteboard progressions with these little blurbs in there. And, and I think it would be really helpful to understand what is actually going on those post-it notes. What is so important and what is it that you use as a hook to guide you, to hook you into that larger thing that that post-it note represents? I tend to write just a couple a couple lines um, to remind me of the scene that's sort of you know boiling up in my head. Um, so, is it plot the, notes it, or is it character notes? It depends. It depends on the scene. It's you know whatever is really the most important aspect of that scene, and then you know I can come in and and fill out the other half of it. There's I have some little ones that are <laughs> sort of for specifics like like specific small events that happen. Um, this character mentions this, oops, so-and-so turns on so-and-so again, uh, that kind of thing that can move around for like plot points. Whereas, and then, and then having, you know, Farida realizes X, Y, Z. I just realized you're looking at your board right now, oh, yeah. aren't you? Totally- <laughs> I figured you might be. And, and you're going, I, ha- I can't say this. I can't say this. I can't say that. <laughs> I have one that says, Twist! Exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's that'll be an interesting section to get to. Well, what about you, Katie? What do you put on your little blurbs and bits on your whiteboard outlines? Oh God. <laughs> um, so my whiteboard on my wall—that's really cool. It's actually—it's a sticker that is also a whiteboard, so it goes on your wall. And I figured my landlord might like that better than ah, yes. me painting my wall with whiteboard paint, which Good is call. what D have done, which I'm looking at right now. Um, so that, it's it's broad story stuff. So I have a lovely, I've got like my three-act structure there, um, because I've also done a lot of playwriting. So looking at it, in ter- so hitting my beats, right? So I've got um, kind of the transition from act one to act two, I've got the midpoint, I've got the climax, and then I'm trying to fill in everything that happens in between these main touchstones in the book. Because okay. uh, I realized I was doing that anyway, like I could kind of look at a book after I'd finished it and map the structure onto it. So I figured that if I know I'm doing that, I can just do that from the start. Um, the whiteboards on my floor are just mind maps. So generally, Wait, you, you yeah. actually have whiteboards on your floor? That's awesome. <laughs> they come off the floor. 
<laughs> they're like big whiteboards that should go on the wall, but I could never get them mounted properly, so they live on the floor. Uh, <laughs> and then also I can hunch and crouch over them, and I it's really cool. I live in an attic, so I'm, I am the crazy writer in the attic. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so that is just like pure mind map noodling, trying to work through plot problems or character problems. Um, and the nice thing is that you can erase it all when you're done. And then <laughs> yes. the note cards, the note cards that paper my garret, like carpet my garret, because they just go all over the floor because my walls aren't that big. They sound a lot like what Aaron's describing. Okay. Uh, just a, a few words to kind of get the scene in mind. And then what I like about actually physically having note cards or post-it notes or something is you can change the order really easily. Um, so if you're looking at the structure, you can say, oh, actually it's not as great if this scene follows this one, but I can put it all the way over here after this one. And for me, for my brain, that works better than something like Scrivener. I know okay. people swear by Scrivener, but I, I need to actually be moving things with my hands. For it to work. That tactile impulse, that makes perfect sense. Now, Scrivener does, in its defense, it does have a corkboard mode with little post-it notes, but you still have to click and drag to move them around. Uh, it doesn't give you that tactile sensation of, of having the cards in your hand. Yeah, Aaron, so. how, have you, how have you found it? Because you said that you started using so, it recently-ish. I uh, That actually is the thing I like about it, because I will... When I'm in the process of writing, I'm like, oh, this scene really doesn't belong here. And the fact you can grab the scene and, like, drag it up so without mm. doing the... Because I've always... I've fallen into the trap with Word of, like, select, copy, not cut. <laughs> and then now you have the same scene twice, and, and your editor's like, which of these did you mean? Um, <laughs> well, worse, you, you cut and then <laughs> you copy something else over it, and all of those paragraphs are oh, gone. God, yeah. No! Oh. <laughs> I honestly think I don't use most of what Scrivener can do. I, I haven't, I don't know, I, I write on a kind of tight deadline, so I don't think I've had time to really play with it and find all the little features, but um, I, I like the fact that I have, that you can have that sidebar, and I tag all the, I write with a lot of points of view, so I, I tag all the scenes with whoever's point of view it is, and that way I can make sure I'm not like loading them all up in one chapter or going, you know, six chapters without you know, sure. having having that character have a purpose because, you know, if they're not going to come up regularly, do you really need that point of view? <laughs> now, something I've heard Scrivener is really good for is for research, right? Like you can keep your research notes handy. I um, believe that. I haven't used it for that. Yeah, personally. there's there's yeah. a resource section. You can put images, you can put wiki articles, you can put hyperlinks to web pages. Yeah, there's a whole resource section there. It's very badass. Which would be cool for someone with a background in anthropology because I've noticed something, Dave. What's I've that? noticed that many writers either have a background in theater or they have an, a background in anthropology. Interesting. Yes. And and Two I think venerable venerable majors that don't always have a <laughs> a future. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm also a history nerd. So I was wondering, oh, yeah. um, in terms of the anthropology, like how have you found that shaped your writing? I think it makes a big difference whenever I, I get a chance to do kind of world building because mm. I you know, it, it, I do work in a shared world, so a lot of the big broad strokes are done. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's not necessarily relevant to the, the game, why you, you know, how, how these particular people interact. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's funny. When I was editing, I, I was editing a book uh, called Sentinel Spire by uh, Mark Sahestet. And he had a character who was an orc, and he'd kind of made this orc's tribe. And he the orc thinks his, his sort of very, very good friend, his blood brother, has died, mm -hmm. and so he cuts a mourning scar, and, and Mark had him cutting 
the scar like on his chest, but they're up in the tundra. And I said, no, ritual scarifications for other people. So if he's going to do this, he needs to do it someplace people are going to see it so they know what happened. Because otherwise, there's no point. And then I realized, like, oh, my God, I just used my anthropology degree. <laughs> That's awesome. That's kind of exciting. Higher so, education for the win. Yes. Yeah, and it goes to show you, too, like, if you study something that's not necessarily writing related, it just enriches your palate. It enriches the things that you can draw from. Sure. We're thinking about, like, like when you do those kind of cultural things, like, what is the question that needs to be answered, right? Like, um, and for me, it, it comes down to, too, like, there's, there'll be things in the source books that sometimes you'll, you'll have stuff and they don't, everything doesn't always fit together. But mm-hmm. knowing that sort of, the way that, that sort of cultural stuff can be a little bit messy, like, there's, there's dragon, the dragonborn are, are a race that I write about, and in the world, they're descended from these slaves that were these dragon tyrants created, and they kind of rose up and overthrew these dragons. And you have to assume that they did this being kind of sneaky and ruthless, right? Because they're dragons, right? You, yeah. You got That's it. how they And they're, they're yeah. vastly outpowered. Um, but then some of the source books were having them be like, oh, they're really noble and friendly and, and you know, everybody really likes them. And it's like, well, but... I mean, that sort of, to me, doesn't fit together. Not that they have to be assholes because they were ruthless at one point, but still, like, this sort of childlike vibe. Um, so I I was like, well, what would work? And I came up with this concept that the Dragonborn have. It's called Shijasruki, which is like... <laughs> Say that I can't again? Think, no, I will not, because <laughs> all, those, all those draconic words, I just write them, and then I try to say them, and I realize that was a mistake. Oh, your narrators so, must hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, so bad i'm like oh, i will tell you how i think you can pronounce this but honest to god whatever whatever comes out of your mouth is fine <laughs> <laughs> um but th- this idea basically the dragonborn have a version of shade where they're they they if they need to critique you if they want to say something nasty they say it in a really nice way right so that uh, it, uh, it's uh. sort of that bless your heart kind of thing so it's not that they're super duper nice it's that all these humans and elves and things really don't know that they're shit talking you. (laughs) And there you have this kind of balance. Like these are people who know, you know, they want allies. They know their friends are, but they know their enemies are. And, and they know like not to stir the pot if it needs to, but they also, you know, they know how to tell you what's what. That's brilliant. So, so all of that talk of nobility and friendly is that's all just PR. (laughs) That's just some misinformed humans. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's awesome. Look, guys, I, I, I hate to say this, but but the clock uh, has sprouted horns. The clock that we are ignoring. The clock that we're ignoring is, is, is can no longer be ignored. It's sprouted horns. There's flames around it, and it's casting like three spells at once. I really don't want to see what happens when it finishes casting it. So I, I, I can only assume that means that, that we've, we've run out of time. Uh, Aaron, this has been a genuine delight. We were all over the map, and it, what a fabulous map it was. Thank Thank you so much for making the time and sharing your thoughts. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Oh, it was our singular pleasure. Now, now, Katie, there there was some writerly goodness bandied about, and and it is literally strewn all over the floor like your whiteboards. Um, but what what uh, what what are you taking away from this? What's what's stuck out for you that you're going to tuck into your writer's toolbox? It's reminded me once again of the importance of architecture. Mm. Um, I think even if you're pantsing, being able to go back after. And making sure that your story is well structured. Um, it's kind of like building a house. If you don't have the foundation, it doesn't matter how nice it's painted. It's not going to last terribly long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so foundation first and, and having that come through, whether you're very specifically plotting beats beforehand or kind of figuring out as, as you go. Sure. But 
Foundation and structure. That's what I got. And that doesn't invalidate the pantsing vibe at no, all. No, if no, you... no, not at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. That and that's that's a valuable asset, I think, for 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 outliners and for pantsers. The thing that I'm taking away is kind of similar to that. It was it was that affirmation of of the. Oh God, the, the 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 hidden network that's going on in your creative subconscious. As mm-hmm. you write more and more, as you write more stories, as you examine and explore stories, you start to be able on a, on a almost a subconscious level to to have your brain do some of your work for you and and come up with plot arcs and character backgrounds and and a certain kind of symmetry that maybe you hadn't planned but was there all along because of that work that you've put in, because of your research into the craft and your efforts in that, that that instinctive storyteller is always at work. And if you put your faith in it, if you trust it, that in the long run, if, you, if you're honest with your stories, it'll come through. And, and you'll find those resonances that strengthen and affirm your story. That was, that was awesome for me. So, oh, very cool. <laughs> The small black pit that is my heart is is feeling things after that lovely speech. Because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> See, and my work is done here. I, I've stirred Katie's dark, cold heart. I count that as a win. Now, now, here's another win for you, dear friends. You just listened to a fabulous conversation. Your 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 writer's toolbox expanded exponentially. I'm sure. Now, here's the deal. You come back in seven days. We're gonna have Aaron back. We're gonna have Katie back. We're gonna add into the mix a a bold and courageous a creative and courageous guest writer uh whether they're schadenfreude fantastic or not we don't know and that's beside the point Uh, but they will put forth a story concept that will kick off a brainstorm of draconic proportions and so you gotta come back for that it's gonna be fabulous but i know it's seven days and that's a long damn time katie what what can our listeners do to, to, to fill those seven days in some meaningful way so they'll just fly by? You can grab your stack of post-its, grab yourself a couple whiteboards, maybe <laughs> get a beer or a coffee, whatever floats your boat, and you should write. Hell yeah! Absolutely. <clears throat> that is the watchword of the round table. I'm so I'm so investing in some post Actually, I've got a six-inch stack of note cards. Whoa, sitting right and they just fell. <laughs> sitting right next to me. I'm gonna put those to use. That's awesome. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So if you look for the wow, if you look for the oh my god, I had no idea that was there. If you look for that stuff, you will find it. I promise you that. But we will see you in just seven days. And until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, 
visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.